0: We've been digging through this letter and following Paul's advice to the church there. A church that's a good church, that's, uh, that uh, he's happy with, that's growing, and yet he challenges them to grow more, to get closer to God. And, uh, and to, it challenges some of their, their ideals and some of the things that are happening there. And as we get into this chapter, he begins by saying, Whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. So right out of the bat, as he says those things, um, Paul is reminding us again that his whole attitude to life is rejoice. And remember, if you haven't been with us, uh, we'll let you know, he's in jail at the time. So he's been in prison for preaching the gospel, and uh, he's responsible for his own care, so there's a lot of pressure to have friends who will bring you food and and uh, and a warm coat and anything else he needs, and uh, and yet he seems to always be talking about the joy that he has. He says, "Whenever I pray for you guys, like here in jail, I'm praying for you guys who are free and on the outside, and I'm praying with joy because of your partnership in the gospel with me." So he's he's happy, he's joyful. Even in his circumstances, and then he he goes on and says, "I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith." Like he's about to remind them of something that uh, that he's told them before. He knows they kind of know this, but he says, "I never get tired of telling you this because it's really important to safeguard your faith." And so he's concerned with something that they already know, but he wants it to, to them to keep it at the forefront of their of their faith. But he's mentioning this threat to their faith. He says, I want it to safeguard you. Like, like, You're not entirely safe, and I want you to remember these things as a safeguard to a threat to your faith. And so what's the threat to their faith? Paul says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. <clears throat> now that might sound like a pretty strong reaction, right? Calling them dogs and mutilators and uh, saying they do evil, Um, and and you got to wonder, why is he being so harsh? He's drawing this line in the sand, and he's clearly creating this us and them between these people. But he says, these guys are a complete threat to what we believe about Jesus and the life that we have in Jesus. And so as they come to you, these dogs, these people who do evil, these mutilators... He says, there's something wrong with what they're saying, and it really threatens this whole operation. Like the church is at stake here. And it's not just because he gets angry when some people disagree with him. It's not just because they have an idea that he doesn't have. <clears throat> it's not that kind of thing where they're, they're just debating over some fine point of theology. He's saying, this is something that's dangerous, now you remember in chapter 1 he says that some people are, are preaching from impure motives, right? And he says these other people are preaching with impure motives and, uh, you know, I'm here in jail and things are kind of rough, but <clears throat> I've got joy about the fact that you guys are partnering with me in the gospel. But these other guys, they're preaching about Jesus, but they're doing it to cause me trouble. Like they're sure that they'll stir up things and people get more upset about people talking about Jesus and they'll take it out on me. And that's why these guys are doing it. Like they're preaching the gospel with impure motives. But in that case, he doesn't say, so have nothing to do with those guys or, or you should attack those guys or aren't they terrible? What does he say? He says it's really, it doesn't really matter even if their motives are impure. Like that's between them and God but at least they're talking about Jesus. At least they're preaching the gospel. And so he's able to be charitable even with people who are trying to cause him problems while he's in jail. He's able to be kind to them even though they're trying to really dig the knife in when he's in this really low and dangerous situation being in jail on trial for his life. And yet this time, when he's talking about these particular people who are are pushing circumcision, he goes... This is dangerous, and they're dogs. They're mutilators of the faith. And so you got to be watch out for them. That's like a problem. And so Paul... Thanks, Dave. Uh, so Paul is saying that there's a problem with these guys that's even more dangerous than people out to get me or out to cause me problems. So he's, it's not that he's taken it personally. It's that he sees it as something that's dangerous for them. And so he says some are preaching the gospel... And uh, out of impure motives, and that's, that's good, actually, because they're at least preaching. But these guys, they're totally dangerous. And so what is it such a big deal that they believe that you have to be circumcised to be saved? Now, if you, if you remember the Old Testament, the people of God there, the Israelites, they were God's people. And one of the outward signs that they had that they were part of that family of faith God had introduced circumcision to Abraham, and he'd said, You know, you're going to do this to your male children as a sign that you guys are separate, that you're my people, that you're my representatives on earth. Like, I'm going to teach you about me, and then you're going to teach the rest of the world. But but this is just an outward sign. It's not magical, but it's something that I'm going to get you to do to know that you're a completely separate kind of people. And so it's kind of this entry right. It's. Some in our, our modern church believe that it's, it's kind of like baptism for, for New Testament believers. It's this entry rite. It's this thing that they do to say, you're one of the inside people. And so Paul uh, here is dealing with people that have a Jewish background and understand the Old Testament scriptures and come from that f- part of the family of faith, and yet they've started to believe in Jesus, but they haven't let go of the old ways, and they're saying, look, in order to really do this right, we got to do what God commanded Abraham and his descendants and all the people who are supposed to represent God's family on earth, and so we need to do this thing. And Paul's saying, no, not only do we not have to do it, but what they're saying to you, how they're teaching that, is actually dangerous to the faith. So why is it such a big deal that they believe you have to be circumcised? If we, and why does it matter to us? Like Nobody is, is coming here, in here on Sunday mornings and saying, by the way, you guys, you need to be circumcised, right? Nobody is pushing us to do that. So what difference will this passage make? What is Paul not just teaching them, but what can we learn from it that applies to our faith? And if we don't have people trying to convince us to do that, what difference, right? What's the big deal? And Paul explains his strong reaction this way He says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. He says, We who worship by the Spirit, and are the ones who are truly circumcised. We're we're like really the family of faith. We don't need to do the physical circumcision because we're inside. Like we've been initiated into the family of faith without that outward sign. We worship by the Spirit of God and we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. And so Paul calls them dogs and and he isn't saying that it's circumcision instead of believing in Jesus. For them, they believe in Jesus But they think you need to add the circumcision to it. That that's also something you have to do. And so they're saying you need both. And Paul then uh, starts to talk about his reaction to that. And he explains to us why it's so important. And he lists these uh, things that he's got going for him. His spiritual pedigree, if you will. The things that he's inherited and uh, the things that... uh, That he's done. And so he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. He lists it and says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I was, I'm a pure-blooded Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Hebrew. Like my parents raised me in this, and they did all those things. And I'm part of, uh, like them, I, I grew up in a, 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 an Israelite family. I followed the customs that Abraham had <clears throat> I was circumcised on exactly the day I was supposed to be. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I've got this status. I'm a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. And then he says, on top of that, I'm a member of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, we know some stories from the New Testament, but if you set those aside for a moment, the Pharisees are like the back-to-the-Bible guys. Of their time. They're the Old Testament version of people who say, like, the Bible's really important, the scriptures are what matter, and we need to obey them, we need to obey them fully, and so they're really serious about their faith. And so we've got stories in the New Testament when Jesus comes along, they have issues with Jesus, and they interpret things differently, but at the heart of it, they really believe that they're following the laws of God. They really believe they're following the rules and and trying to be good people and trying to be what God's called them to be. And so they're starting from that place. And Paul says, I was one of those guys that's really serious about Scripture and really loved God. And I was so serious about it that I zealously persecuted the church. Like when I believed that that the Scriptures were against Jesus, when I interpreted them that way, I was so serious about it, I was willing to go find anybody who believed in that and give them a hard time, and attack them, and persecute them. I went looking for for letters. Uh, At one point we're told that when he was on his way to Damascus, when he had his big experience with Jesus, he was on his way there with letters that he had, Giving him official permission from the government to persecute Christians. That's how serious he was. And he says, I was, as for zeal, that's, that's, that was my bag. Like I was 100% sold out, 100% committed to this thing. And, uh, and so I, I was so serious, I did this thing that showed how serious I was. And I persecuted the church. And in fact, I obeyed the law, the Old Testament law, I obeyed it without fault. Like, I never skipped anything in there. I, I gave it 100%. <clears throat> and he says, that's what I did. So I inherited a faith from my family. I grew up in just the right place and all the things that would impress them. I was circumcised. I, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. All these things that a, a, a lot of the people of the, uh, of the Israelites would have respected. And he says, I got the same pedigree they do. I, I'm not saying it's not important because I'm not willing to do it. I've already done that and I've already shown how serious I am about my faith and I did all those things and persecuted the church because I was so serious about what I believed. Just like these guys are serious about what they believe and they really believe they're doing something right for God by teaching this circumcision thing. So he's not just saying as he unpacks it. He says, I was so serious about these things that I did them without fault. But then he says, none of those things actually matter. And he says, I'm not just saying that you don't need to add circumcision to faith in order to be saved. He lists all these spiritual advantages that he's had, all these pedigrees, all these things that would have been impressive to this other group. And he says, all of that, but, you know, we... Don't rely on those things. We rely on what Christ has done for us. And so the first part is his advantages. The second part's his accomplishments. And, uh, and yet none of those things, including circumcision, is a bad thing. But he says we don't rely on that. We don't rely on that alone. And we don't rely on Jesus and that. He's not ashamed of any of it. Except the part about persecuting the church. That he's ashamed of. But he's not ashamed of being an Israelite. He's not ashamed of his, his heritage. He's not ashamed of, of believing in the Old Testament scriptures. He's glad he did that. Changed his mind about what some of them mean. But he's still all for that. He's all for being zealous and being 100% sold out. He's made that pretty serious and, and pretty plain. But he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's not, he, he says, they're, they're pushing circumcision. I got circumcision plus all these other things. Like when it comes to listing out the things that, that make your faith impressive to these guys. Like, like I can check all the boxes. He says, it's not just that I'm saying circumcision plus Jesus isn't necessary. He's saying circumcision plus anything else. The whole list that I've, uh, I've listed, which obviously some of them would have been impressed by, and maybe some of them were being towed towards these guys and starting to believe what they said. But he says, no, no, it's not just circumcision. And it's not just circumcision and being part of the Israelites. And it's not just that I was circumcised on the eighth day. And it's not just that I I, I did all these things and zealous. He says, look, all those things fall in the category of worthless. When compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, when it comes to the things you can list, and I got my lists And maybe you've got yours, or maybe you just aspire to have a list, or you've got things you're trying to accomplish. When it comes to anything that you can list that sounds impressive, anything that sounds like you're a good person, anything that sounds like you're religiously really committed to this thing of the faith. He says all that stuff that you could stack up, the stuff that you got handed down to you, or the stuff that you've done for yourself, when it comes to the list, Everything else, everything that you could list, worthless, garbage, when it's compared to knowing Jesus. If you've got Jesus, anything else that you add to it is nothing. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the man who has Jesus and everything has no more than the man who has Jesus and nothing else. Like if you got Jesus, you got everything you need, and not just bare minimum, but everything. And Paul says nothing, nothing compares with it, nothing's equal to it, but nothing is even secondary to it. Nothing even makes the list if Jesus is on the list, because he's it, and he's all of it. So he tells us knowing Jesus is like the one thing in his life that he's hanging on to that matters. And so the reason that he's upset with these guys is not just that they're Jewish and they're pushing circumcision, but the thought that anyone would add something to knowing Jesus that you have to do. And then he goes on to unpack what he means about knowing Jesus. He explains what it means uh, to know Christ Jesus as Lord in that way. And he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to experience firsthand. Like I, I want to experience that power that pulled Jesus out of his grave clothes and raised him from the dead and pushed the stone away and sent him back walking on the earth alive after they'd crucified him. I want to experience that kind of power. I want that kind of power at work in my life. I want to know Jesus, not just intellectually. I don't just want to know stories about him. I don't want to know things that I believe about him. I want him at work in me in such a powerful way that it's the same kind of power that pulled him out of the grave. He wants to experience the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to come alive the way that Jesus came alive in that moment. And in order to experience that, he says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I want to share Jesus' suffering and death first so that I can know the resurrection. I want to suffer with him sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Now see, sometimes people can, can take that thing that we need to know Jesus and we need to have faith in Jesus, and they go, well, we have faith in Jesus, then we don't do anything. So we just, you know, we do that, and, and oh well, we live our lives, we try to be kind of nice, but there's, if there's nothing we can add to it, the way Paul says it, if there's nothing that goes along with that, and there's nothing that you need to have Jesus and... Then, then they think, well, then the, uh, you know, the pressure's off and I can just go around and do what I want and I can just live how I want. and I'll, I'll try not to be too bad, but it doesn't really matter if I'm bad because I've got Jesus. Paul says, no, to know Jesus is to know his resurrection power. He wants to know Jesus not just in a a way in his head. He doesn't want to know the ideas or the stories about Jesus. He says, I want to know Jesus right with me. I want to know Jesus inside of my life. I want to know his power working in me. And I I want to know his power that can raise me from the dead way I've been living to real resurrection life he says i know that in order to be raised from the dead you got to be dead right like jesus didn't fake it he wasn't like partially you know uh in trouble kind of looked like he was dead and they put him in there and and he kind of revived and he crawled out and pushed the stuff that's not what happened that's not what we believe right We believe he was dead, dead, and he was buried. And three days later, despite having been effectively murdered by professional killers, which is what the Romans were, he came back to life and he tore off the grave clothes. And the stone was rolled away by the power of God and he walked around and he appeared to them in small groups and he appeared to them in big groups. He, he walked through walls into the upper room and he showed them his, his, his nail prints in his hands and he met with them on the beach and he cooked them breakfast and he ate it with them. And he gathered with them a huge crowd on a mountainside and he ascended into heaven like he was alive again. They saw him, and they heard him, and they touched him, and they ate with him, and he was back from the dead. And Paul says, I want that real kind of experience of real life, and I feel dead, and I know that there are things in my life that keep me from that living, and I want to die to my old way of life. I want to die to my selfishness. I want to die to the life that I have ruined, and I want to rise again with new resurrection life, and I want to start all over, fresh and clean and faultless, and Jesus can do that in me by his power, And so he says something will happen in me and something will change me. It'll change the way I think and it will change the way I act and it'll change the way I live. And there will be resurrection power that there wasn't in my life before. And the only way I can get there is if that old selfish part of me that I've been hanging on to is dead. i got to die to that so I can live to this. And he says, I I don't even, he doesn't even really understand how it works. He says, I want to know Christ, experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, like I don't know how this works, one way or another, I can start to live the resurrection. See, Paul believed that when Jesus said, Take up your cross and follow me, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about just sacrificing, he's talking about dying to yourself so you can live in Christ. Giving up the old ways so that you can form a new way. Giving up your shame and the things that dragged you down and the things that held you back from living the life that God planned for you, and he says you can have real resurrection life and all of that deadness that just pulls you down and weights you down and keeps you from really, really living. When Jesus invites us to abundant life, that's what Paul's talking about, this life that is full and free and good and purposeful, that has a a reason to live, a reason to get up in the morning, that lives exactly like you were designed to live and you feel finally like you're the real you that you were always born to be. And Paul says, I want to get there and I know the only way is if I let go of some stuff from the old life, especially my selfish ways and I can move into new living. I want to know Jesus like that. And he says, nothing I can do for myself, nothing that I can work up, nothing that I could add, nothing that's been given to me and nothing that I've accomplished myself. No kind of spiritual accomplishments are going to get me there. That's karma, right? You do good things and you get good things. Like you do good and you move up the chain. He says, that's not what it's about. What you got to do is lean into Jesus and let him do what he wants to do you and when you do you get life and you trade your deadness for real living paul says that's what i want i already had circumcision that wasn't enough i already had these accomplishments i had a great family that raised me to know And understand the things of God. I I, I grew up in this in this place where people were really focused and and I had all these things going for me and and I was zealous like I was excited about what I did. I got up and I, I got going at what I was doing and and I really thought I was I was doing the right thing. None of that matters. It isn't about just doing what I think is right. I want to know the truth. And the truth is that Jesus died and he died so that I would give up my deadness and that when he's resurrected, I would get new life with him. And that's the reason, like last Sunday, we celebrate communion because we are celebrating the fact that we are taking Jesus' death into us. Not so that we're more dead, but so that we're dead to the old ways and we come alive to the new ways. So that we let go of the old stuff so that we can have something better. We let go of our selfishness and we gain this selfless mission that Jesus had to live for other people. Just like Timothy and, and Epaphroditus did. And we get on mission with him and we get this satisfaction of just knowing our lives matter and we make a difference in the world. Paul says, I have had enough of all those other things, and they're all dead compared to Jesus. But when I know Jesus, at those moments when I see him clearly and understand him and allow him to live in me and work on me, I become truly alive. And I don't want the old things anymore. I don't want that old life. I want the new one. I don't want the deadness. I want the resurrection. nothing nothing is anywhere near as good as that i would trade everything for that